welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer episode number 50 for Wednesday, August 24th, 2016. I'm your host, Ken Gagney, and before we get into this week's episode, a little bit of background. Those who aren't familiar with the games of the 1970s and 1980s might not have encountered interactive fiction. Another name for it is text adventures. This is a format of game that is composed largely, if not exclusively, of text. The game describes for you a room that you are in, what you see in that room, and other objects and people in that room. And then you type a command to interact with what information you have been presented. For example, you might type go north, or get axe, or inventory to see what's in your inventory, or score to see what your score is, if the game even has a score. However, most of your commands will take the form of two words, usually a verb and a noun, as in the example of get axe. What is widely considered to be the first sex adventure game was Colossal Cave Adventure, developed in 1976 by Will Crowther for the PDP-10, and further expanded the following year by Mr. Don Woods. The company Infocom made its fortunes developing a wide variety of text adventure games, most notably the Zork series. Although we do now have home computers capable of graphics, the interactive fiction community is in fact alive and well. And that is why, this week on the Polygamer Podcast, I'm speaking with the co-founder and co-director of the Interactive Fiction Technology Foundation and the inventor of Twine, Chris Clemis. Hello, Chris. Hi. How are you today? Doing great. How are you? Fine, thank you. So the Interactive Fiction Technology Foundation, besides being a mouthful, is also a relatively new organization. I believe it's, at the time of this recording, what, uh, two months old? Uh, yeah, about. We launched uh, earlier in, I believe, right before 4th of July. So that would make it about, yeah, about a month, actually. So since it is so new, we can't expect our listeners to know what it is already. So what is the elevator pitch for the IFTF? First of all, it's a nonprofit, a 501c3, that is dedicated to supporting the community infrastructure, and whether that means technically or other kinds of support. It's all the stuff that goes along with um, the community uh, around interactive fiction that has been around for more than, we'll say, two decades. It's been around for quite a long time. And what was it that led to the founding of this organization in the year 2016? What precipitated the desire to create this organization this year? I think there's a sense overall that continuity is going to be important for us. There's no one like event per se that you can point to to say, yes, we absolutely need a foundation. But it's just, it's been one of those things that in the interactive fiction world, there have been so many people who have been generous with their time, effort, even money um, to help support the community, whether it's running a server or an, uh, an archive for it or producing and um, distributing tools to help play games and create them, that kind of thing. They've always been doing it kind of out of the goodness of their hearts and their passion for the medium. And so eventually all things come to an end, right? And so we want to make sure is that those folks, um, even before they do come to an end, we can start supporting um, the people who have been doing uh, some really great work for IF. In any volunteer organization, attrition is natural and people's passion and energy and availability will ebb and flow. But isn't the IFTF also founded on those same passions and that, those same energies? Oh, absolutely. But at the same time, I mean, I think with any organization, um, we, we certainly have sp spent time thinking about how to structure things in terms of continuity, in terms of that 
you know, eventually all of us probably, most likely anyway, will eventually want to move on to other things. All of us who are directors are sitting on our advisory board. And we want to make sure that this organization kind of outlasts each individual one of us and is something that stays around for a long time. So was this an attempt to centralize a lot of diverse, disparate, independent efforts? Um, I suppose. Um, I don't see it as a like a just a giant umbrella under which a bunch of projects will exist it's more that i I see us reaching out um to fill in gaps where people are overtaxed or they just have lost interest for whatever reason um and providing the support that they that uh will help really important projects continue and the kind of projects i'm talking about for example are um for example there's the if archive where basically the entire history of hobbyist um, IF is, exists, and you can download pretty much everything there that has ever really been released since the 90s, um, which is an incredible resource if you think about it. We're, help, we're going to help support that. Um, we've also taken a lot of steps, even you know, there's just in these past few weeks or about a month, to help support the annual IF competition. And that's something that Oh, I don't know exactly how long that's been going on, but for quite a long time, um, probably at least a decade, maybe even maybe 15 years or so. And um, that's something that really has existed because of individuals. Um, because when, um, you know, the torch got passed a while back, um, but there's always going to be a, a need for someone else to take that up. And the IFTF is really, I think, an organization that's going to help make sure that those those uh, projects and those kinds of uh, events are going to continue to exist going forward. So how does the Interactive Fiction Technology Foundation change those two properties you just mentioned, the IF Archive and IF Comp? Sure. Uh, well, to like right now, so the IF Archive is a much cleaner example. Right now, so far as I know, there isn't any way for um, someone who is really interested in keeping the IF Archive up and running to actually offer assistance other than through volunteer work. This is sort of going to be, among a lot of other ways, a channel to where if you want to support it, you'll be able to buy an actual donation and it'll be you know tax deductible and all the good things that go with a nonprofit. With the IF competition, it goes into um, the same sorts of things, but also actually in both cases, it also is going to help support the technical underpinnings. So, for example, you know, there are obviously servers that need to exist to help both of these things run. You know, overall, that that support has to come from somewhere. And this is, I think, going to be a conduit for that. And who was it that was running these two events that it now sort of does fall under the auspices of the IFTF? Ooh. Uh, well, I, I, I want to also be clear. Um, the IF archive isn't yet it, like really quite under the auspices of the IFTF. It's more something of a goal for us, I think. The IF comp is in the process of being formally sort of transferred over, um, and we're further along on that particular project. Um, right now, uh, the IF competition organizer, uh, insofar as they're exactly is one. It's not like an elected position or anything like that is, um, Jason McIntosh and who happens to be our president. So there's obviously a nice overlap there. Um, as far as the IF archive, I actually don't know, um, off the top of my head, all the folks, I know it's a number of people who actually work really hard behind the scenes to make sure that it's up and running. I suspect Andrew Plotkin likely has something to do with it. Oh, absolutely. I know he's one of them. Um, but I think he has a number of shadowy helpers or not so shadowy helpers too, helping out. <laughs> and didn't the IF comp itself fall under new management in the past two years or so? 
Um, I don't know the exact chronology, but I believe, I mean, obviously it used to, as far as I remember, um, Stephen Grenad was, well, the history of it was that uh, Kevin Wilson, I believe, was the original organizer of the IFCOMP, and then it eventually migrated to Stephen Grenad. Um, I don't know exactly when the trade-off happened with Jason, um, but yeah, I think it was in recent years. We'll put it that way. And what exactly is the IF Comp other than a competition for interactive fiction? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, you've kind of captured it in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> so basically, it was really, it, like I was saying, it's been around for a very long time. Um, it was really designed as an effort to help. It kind of predated, as far as I know, the idea of a game jam or um, things like that, where... It's basically a yearly thing where um, folks enter text adventures or text-based games that are intended to be uh, completable in two hours or less. Um, there are a couple other sort of restrictions that we put into place on it, um, but that's kind of the main one. It's designed for shorter works more than uh, something that you would sit down and play over the course of a month or something like that. These games are all freely available to download, um, and anybody who is interested can go to the website and download them and um, enter scores for them. It's sort of a people's choice style award almost. Um, and the fo- and there are, people are super kind and donate prizes and uh, from, you know, nice things like gift certificates to Amazon to ridiculous things. I forget if, um, I, I forget if this is still being donated, but it used to be that one of the prizes you could pick was just a plain old jar of ass kicking peanuts. Um, and uh, so, you know, first place gets first pick and so on and so forth. And honestly, it's not really, it's to a certain degree about the prizes, but, and the competition itself, but honestly, it's been a tremendous driver of people creating new works. It's an incentive and gives people a deadline to work towards, um, towards releasing stuff that, you know, the projects that you sit around and you play with, and it's just sort of like your own, it's almost like, at least for me, my, I entered in it, uh, let's see, wow, like around 2000, early 2000s, I forget exact, which I want to say 2003. Anyway, for me, it was, uh, there was this game idea that I had kicking around in my head for a really long time. And I thought, well, maybe this is the year that I actually do the IF competition. And um, that turned out to be a game called Blue Chairs, um, which came in, I believe, second, which was a really, I mean, it was just a great experience overall. And moreover, it, the competition was just a great um, motivator to actually get something out the door. Um, because if you're working on something, um, especially personal projects where you don't necessarily have a taskmaster looming over you saying you have to get this done by this particular deadline, um, there's a great temptation, obviously, to just, um, you know, fiddle with it endlessly and never actually come out with a finished product. And so the, the competition has been a great sort of framing device um, for that to keep, keep to encourage folks to uh, move on and do some kind of release of their work. With game jams, the competitors usually have a finite amount of time in which to produce their game. Do IF comp entrants have a limited time or is this something that they work toward all year? It, there's no strict time limit. There's sort of a, I think people look a scan, would look askance if you sat there and released a game that you've been working on for five years or something like that. But there's no official, there's not like a, it's not like a 48 hour kind of jam or anything like that. I think uh, you, you do have to declare an intent to enter the competition at one point in the year. And that's actually, we uh, timed the IFTF launch to coincide with roughly that in early um, July. And then I believe uh, entries to the competition arrive or are released, I believe, sometime in September. But there's no actual stipulation that you have to work on it between July and September. And in fact, that would be pretty tough. Most of the time, 
at least reading other people's postmortems of their work, it's usually a process that takes many months. Is there a theme to the IF comp that the entrants have to meet? No, it's pretty much whatever pops into your mind. (laughs) And who judges the entries? Pretty much anybody who cares to. Um, You can go to the website, which is ifcomp.org. And actually, um, there's a nice little sort of status on the very homepage where it kind of lets you know, are the games ready to be judged or not? Um, Right from there, um, you'll be able to download the entries. Um, There are specific rules about judging insofar as, like, I think you have to enter scores for a certain number of games at one, t- <clears throat> at one time. And that's really just to prevent it from being, you know, people popping in and out and voting just for their friend's game, that kind of stuff. But apart from that, there are very few um, restrictions on on who can judge or anything like that. And to be honest, even I would encourage folks listening that even if you aren't specifically interested in being a judge, that doesn't mean that you can't play the games or otherwise try things out. There's no obligation that if once you download one, you have to absolutely judge it or anything like that. It's mainly, it's for your own, it's for your own enjoyment, right? And so it's, even if you just want to dip in your toes into, you know, if you're not that familiar with what text adventures are like, or you're just curious where the state of the um, the community is. It's a great way to check it out. I suppose I should mention, in the interest of full disclosure, that I have been a not a entrant or a competitor or judge, but a sponsor of the IF Comp. Every year, I donate a subscription to my Apple II magazine, Juice GS. And in fact, there is an entrant who every year he wins a prize, and he always chooses that prize. I think he's been a subscriber <laughs> to my magazine for like six years, and he's never paid for it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a wide variety. It's not like I was saying there's, I think, I forget if the prize list is available this year yet or not. But um, I mean, it's a really wide, people have um, put up like, for example, I believe someone offered either editing services or would even build a game, like a tiny game for you, for example, as a prize or um, you know, things like subscriptions have been prizes. It's been like a while because it's it's not like we have humongous sponsors in the first place. These are prizes by and large that are donated from within the community itself. And so folks are creative um, with what they donate. It's 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 inter- like the prizes are honestly kind of interesting a lot of the time in, in and of themselves. So to tie all this back in, the Interactive Fiction Technology Foundation says on their website, on the page that lists your mission and goals, there's a smaller section called non-goals, which is what the IFTF does not do. Mm-hmm. And, it, and one of the things it does not do is directly support or fund the creation of new works of interactive fiction. But the IF comp sounds like it's certainly fostering an environment for the creation of new works. Right. But there's actually, I think there's a key distinction there. Um, and that is that we're, we're interested in funding infrastructure much more than individual projects. And I think in a certain sense of the word, the IF comp is infrastructure. It's, it's a thing that's going to exist for a long time and has existed for a long time. And we want to keep sure, make sure that that keeps going. Really why the reason why we put that in there more than anything else is that we want to distinguish ourselves from things like fund better, which is a, uh, sort of a, uh, I forget what you would, the, the exact term you use it. Basically, you can pitch a project, uh, a text-based project, to fail better games. They're the folks who make um, Fallen London, Sunless Sea, that those those kinds of games. And um, if they, it's sort of like a mini kind of. I would hesitate to say it's a Kickstarter thing because your audience is basically that particular company. But at any rate, it's more of a commercial arrangement where they fund development of a game, one particular game. Um, you know, they help market it and so forth in exchange for. A share of um, the profits. We're we're obviously not a profit 
oriented kind of organization in the first place. Um, but at least for right now, like we're much less interested in um, funding development on individual games as so much as we are making sure that the, um, the, the supporting structure that is out there that helps people create games continues to exist. Um, the, uh, the thing that is really interesting, I think, about the IF community in general is that by and large, um, we have been very non-commercially oriented. Um, and that has strengths and weaknesses, obviously. And that's and part of the reason or part of the reason why the IFTF exists in the first place is because we have been so um, non-commercial in the past. And people have been doing things and releasing, you know, in, like text create, adventure creation tools like Inform and Tads. They've um, Tads originally was shareware, but now they're both freeware things. And Twine, obviously, is released for free, too. And you know, the, we really want to make sure that those things exist for free going forward and that they were, even though we're not putting a price tag on these particular things, um, they continue to get the support and other, other sort forms of, you know, whatever's needed to keep them going. Given that this is primarily a non-commercial niche for most people and that it seems to fly under the radar. I'm surprised that one of the IFTF's goals is to offer legal and financial stability to IF creators. What sort of legal aspects are present in today's IF community? Well, I think that overall, there's obviously the issue of, um, well, trademarks in particular, I guess is a good good specific example to go into. Um, you know, right now it actually takes quite a bit of money to file um, a trademark, for example, um, in the United States, at least, um, who knows about the rest of the world. Um, and so as far as I know, I don't think that anybody who has worked on these larger projects, for example, like inform tads, whatever, have even looked into it. I could be wrong. I don't know. If, I don't know for sure. Does this super matter? No, not especially not until you get into a legal fight. And hopefully that never comes to pass. But to me, it's more of a matter of protecting things and just in case, in case it comes down to a nasty legal fight. We want like that I see is the potential role of IFTF. I mean, honestly, uh, the IF community um, is incredibly collegial in general. And I have not, as far as I know, heard of anybody threatening to sue anybody. But we also live in a larger world now and where people are starting to pay more attention to text based gaming. And who knows what the future may bring? <laughs> is that particular goal the most important part of IFTF? No, not by a long shot. Um, but it is something that we wanted to be um, to be part of our, our charter. You just said that more people are starting to pay attention to interactive fiction. Why is that? That's a really good question. A lot of people, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people, like if, I mean, to be honest, I mean, the most glib short answer I can give you is that I think mobile platforms made it much more appealing. And the reason why is that, Obviously, if you're playing on a laptop or even a plain old regular workstation, you people have come to expect massive multimedia extravaganzas, right? It, playing uh, a game like a text-based game on a, des a desktop is almost. I, I like I like to liken it a lot to reading poetry in general. It doesn't have a huge audience. Those people who are into it are very much into it, but it's not something that. You know, someone browsing through uh, Barnes and Noble bookstore isn't going to hop over to the poetry section necessarily. But the difference is, and maybe my metaphor breaks down a little bit here, is that when you're on a mobile device, a 
um, until recently at least, um, you have a lot, the graphics capabilities of these things are a little bit less than what you can do on a desktop computer. And so you're constrained by that already. The other thing is that you're playing these games um, in a much different context a lot of the time. You know, most people um, have, I don't know if most, but many people at least have kind of a dedicated room they go into to play a video game. Whereas on a desktop, I mean, um, or a PC in general, whereas on a mobile device, you're wherever you happen to be in the world. Maybe you're on a bus. Um, maybe you're just waiting for something to happen. You're in a waiting room somewhere, or you're just out and about in the world and you're having an interaction with this device that has a much smaller screen. Um, it has much fewer input possibilities. Obviously, you've got the touchscreen to work with and the gyroscope or whatever, but it's a lot less fine-grained potentially as far as control goes then for example you have a keyboard in front of you with a million keys and you've got a mouse with like five buttons on it that lets you do very very precise movements and things like that and so i think and like you know you don't necessarily when you're sitting on a bus or wherever in the world you don't necessarily want your phone making enormous noise or anything like that um, it's almost like taking a book out into the park you know that kind of experience and that's why i think like games like 80 days that obviously have exploded. Um, and I think we count pretty much universally in the community as a text-based game that these things have much more appeal, I think, in these mobile contexts. Um, and it's also the truth is that I think that um, it, the IF community in, in general has become more open to experimentation. Um, the parser that is sort of the hallmark of the old text adventures and not to say that they're dead by any means, but it's sort of a traditional, the traditional text adventure interface. You know, we've obviously moved on to, or have expanded onto things like choice based interfaces or things where you're even, you know, you're not even necessarily thinking of it as, I mean, if you ask somebody who's playing 80 days, are you playing a text adventure? They probably wouldn't even say yes, even though in my opinion, they are, it's just a game. And obviously there are graphics that go with it, but the centerpiece of the game and the interaction is text. And so it's become sort of this thing that has sort of osmosed, I think, to a certain degree um, into what you would, might consider a more mainstream kind of game and mainstream interaction model. Now, you briefly alluded to this just now, but in addition to mobile devices having different environments and different processing power, they also have very different inputs. And I would think that that would work against interactive fiction, that since it is primarily a text-based input, a command line interface, that doesn't lend itself well to the small virtual keyboard of an iPhone. Right. But that also presupposes that you're going to use the keyboard as the main way to enter text, by which I mean that, like, for example... You know, Andrew Plotkin has spent a lot of time thinking in particular, and I'm sure other folks have too. Um, he's spent a lot of time thinking about, like, how do I make that, this experience better? Assume sort of working from the assumption that, yes, you still want to be uh, have this game experience where you're you can, in theory, the sky is the limit as far as what you can do. Um, instead of having to spell out all the possible actions in front of you. Um, and I think he spent a lot of time thinking about how do I make this more convenient? At the same time, it's absolutely true that you know, typing it, no, like at least I don't enjoy typing on my phone for hours at a time. Um, who knows? I'm also old. So <laughs> you might want to, a younger person might actually be better at answering this question. Um, but at the same time, people are also experimenting with other sort of hybrid-esque uh, interfaces. And I think there's a project 
that just got a recent release called Texture um, that is going to be really interesting to follow. The basic idea behind it is it's sort of a hybrid between like a choice-based interface and a parser one um, where there are sort of um, demarcated nouns in the text that you see. And there are also a set of uh, verbs or other thing words you can use to interact with them. And you basically interact with it by dragging one word onto another, and that's how you indicate your actions. And so it's not quite as freeform as a regular parser where you can just type whatever pops into your head, but it, it adds a lot of p- potential actions, much more so than like, you know, in a choice-based interface, basically have five things usually spelled out or fewer um, below in terms of below the main text in terms of what you want to do next. Um, texture seems to offer more options. And that's just one example, though. I mean, the community in general, um, the IF is like the, the, the larger community is incredibly willing to try out new things. Um, and really say, you know, at this, we have sort of the, we have hardliners by all means who are saying, you know, text, the parser interface is the best. Um, and you can't do better, but there also is this wonderful contingent of folks who are trying new things, who are saying, not necessarily throwing out, um, the baby with the bathwater, but saying, well, what can we do to adapt this interaction that we really love and make it a accessible to, you know, a touch-based interface, but also, you know, the world has obviously changed a lot since 1970, whatever, um, where these, where these kinds of games first appeared, um, on the scene. And so how can we take advantage of what um, has has changed since then and with while maintaining the spirit of the game? So, you know, something that I don't know that anybody's really um, there have been experiments, but nobody's really, I think, taken a full fledged dive into yet is, for example, a voice based interface. Um, there are folks that have tried different things with that, but um, there hasn't been a clear, obvious way forward with it. And that's just one other possibility. There's tons of things out there. And that's the thing is, obviously, you know, I, I love text and I love um, what you can potentially do with text. I really think that it frees you up in all these amazing ways that um, if you, as soon as you let go of the idea of, well, we have to build 3D models or even draw things um, for everything that ever you interact with, all of a sudden, all these interesting, really interesting possibilities emerge from that. And so that that part is, I think, the core of why I think it's still very much relevant now, I mean, by which I mean um, interactive fiction. Yeah, the closest thing I can think of to a voice-based interface are Jared Sorensen's Parsley Adventures, which are mm-hmm. a completely different medium entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... I, I've played, I forget which one it was. I played one of, like, I think perhaps his first one and it was a lot of fun. And obviously it, you know, it's, it's very much a tongue in cheek, um, or nod towards the fact that, you know, parser interfaces have never been perfect and they can often be frustrating to interact with. And at the same time, there's something lovely about doing it with a person in like, you know, in like having a conversation, a constrained conversation with a real person is a lot of fun. Yeah. I first encountered it at PAX East where Jared was running Parsley, which for those listening is basically it replaces the computer with a person who has memorized the script and the layout of a small, say, 16-room text adventure. And the audience, it's participatory. They take turns issuing two-word commands. And the human parser reports the results of their command. It's a great party game, especially for people who know what interactive fiction is in the first place. Oh, yeah. And there are like a whole bunch of... I, I was listening to... Um, another podcast and they were doing, it seems to have sprouted like a little subgenre of games. I think there are other folks who are trying this kind of idea out, um, in tabletop. Oh, fascinating. I did not know about that. 
Yeah, I think it was it, it was someone. I don't know that it's actually been released. It was something I was listening to from a convention called Metatopia, which is sort of like the uh, spring training almost for tabletop, where people bring a lot of ideas that have been kind of um, uh, floating around in their heads, and it's sort of like a giant play test. Um, and I've never actually been, but it sounds like a great time. Um, but anyway, they were talking about, or they were playing through a very parsley kind of similar kind of game. It was it was just a lot of fun. I think you can do a lot of things with it. So the mobile interface, as we discussed, certainly opens up the realms of areas in which people can access interactive fiction. But one of the driving goals of the IFTF is accessibility of interactive fiction, of making sure that it's accessible to as diverse and wide an audience as possible, which is very core to the mission of this podcast as well, Polygamer. Can you talk about the accessibility of interactive fiction? Sure. Uh, I think accessibility is one of IF's great virtues um, right out of the gate because it solves a lot of problems or there aren't as many problems, I guess we'll say for a developer to make sure that their games are accessible as there might be for a, you know, a a mainstream, you know, visual game um, or graphics based game. Um, Obviously, since it's text based, um, that means that, for example, you can basically, by and large, and I have to admit, I'm not a super expert on accessibility. By and large, you can get away with um, just using a screen reader, for example, if you're visually impaired to play an IF game. And so because it's all text based, it's it's a lot. There are a lot fewer hurdles is basically the, the easiest way to think about it. At the same time. I think that we or we feel overall that the accessibility of IF could really be improved. And it's right now we're at the stage where we know we think there is a problem or at least there are a lot of places where things could be improved. We don't know yet really exactly how to go about doing that. And that's really our first goal is to try to um, do a survey of folks and the existing technologies and figure out where are people having problems um, with uh, IF? Where are they not able to get access to either both the games themselves or also the tools that people use to build them? We want to make sure that both sides of things are equally accessible. And so we're talking with folks who have a lot of experience in um, accessibility. I think the hard part, the thing that from a, um, I think from a very casual eye it seems really obvious, like it should be an easy thing to make sure that your game is accessible. But in fact, it's actually very complicated because there are all kinds of things that you may not even necessarily think of. Um, there are obviously guidelines that exist um, that are really good, in fact, for judging how accessible something is. But these guidelines are not black and white rules. It's not something that anybody can go off the street um, can go down a, a list and say, yes, no, yes, no, yes, 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 and so forth. It's something that takes judgment and experience. And so that's why we're really interested in marshalling resources towards that issue. The other thing about it in general or about accessibility is that we lean really hard on, for example, like Twine leans very hard on web-based um, accessibility. Like obviously it outputs to a web page, um, but there are a million tiny things that can go wrong with that. And so because, um, and I'll be honest, I'll speak as a developer myself, like I am very committed myself to making Twine as accessible as it possibly can be. That said, um, you know, I do, I work on Twine um, as basically a, a side project it is not my, my day job. And so it's really a difficult position to be in because I really want to support those people who um, need extra or uh, you know, visually impaired folks or, or whatever. 
Um, I want to make sure that they have a good experience, but at the same time, I have limited resources just because of the, the nature of the beast. And so I ha- I'm in this really unpleasant position where I know that there are problems out there. I don't know exactly what those issues are, but I really want to fix them. And IFTF is really going to be, I think, a, a way to get at that, to A, get people connected with developers and, and folks like that, um, but also be able to channel resources so that we can make sure that those developers like me, um, and by and large, as far as I know, nobody's getting rich off of uh, building IF tools. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it that way. I think... They're, you know, 80 days, I think they're, they're doing the uh, Inkle studios. I mean, they're, I think they have, they're doing okay for themselves, but I'm talking about inform these tads, these other sort of backbone kind of projects that have existed for a long time. We want to make sure that these things um, get the attention and um, the help that they may, may need. Would you say accessibility is primarily the responsibility of individual game creators or of the game engine? I think that, the game engine should go as far as it possibly can to do that, to make things accessible. And the reason why is that, just like I was saying, like a lot of the, especially in the IF world, um, oftentimes these are games that people are making because they're really passionate. Um, they don't have the expectation that they, and they don't have the budget necessarily um, to, for example, bring on somebody to help them out with accessibility. And so everything we can possibly do, I think to set at least sort of a ground or a floor to say like, yeah, if you like just by default are the stuff that you create with twine or the stuff you create with inform is going to be accessible to as many people as possible. And I mean, that just makes sense. It's just like how we, you know, we don't, uh, we don't give people ugly color schemes, you know, when by default, you can go in and there and muck things up if you want to, Um, but I think it's our responsibility as engine creators and maintainers is to give people who may not even be, that's the thing. I mean, accessibility is also a subject that you really, it's not something that you can just pick up in an afternoon and understand everything there is to know about it. It's something that takes dedication. And it's like, well, if we can, if we can, um, take the people who are experts in it and kind of concentrate those resources in a place that is going to help out as many people as possible, that just makes sense to me. That said, I do really think that to the extent possible, I think game creators should also be creating things that are accessible. Um, but it's also, it's, it's a tough situation for a lot of people because like I was saying, it's stuff that they're doing in their free time, stuff that they're doing because it's a passion for them. And, um, accessibility is not easy. And it's, it, to me, it's sort of like, is they're going if i don't think it's really necessarily even unfortunately i think this is a bad thing i don't know that this is something that is on the radar of a lot of um, hobbyist creators or people in the community and then let alone obviously corporations unfortunately you said there is no checklist that creators can use to determine the accessibility of their game but program but organizations like able gamers for example do provide some resources to point them in the right direction like their includification guide an if creator who is interested in accessibility where would you suggest they start hmm. yeah i don't mean to say that there are it's just a complete wild west the uh i, I just mean that it's not something that you can automate Right. If you could, if you could point something to, and, and I want to be careful about that because there are obviously tools that you can use that are automated, but they're not, they're not just a machine you stick your game into and it says, yes, you're 96%, um, accessible or whatever. Um, there are rules that require some interpretation. 
I guess is the best way to put it. And things that require a human being to make a decision about um, are the basics obviously can be easily tested. Can, you know, making sure that contrast and font size and things like that um, are correct are things you can automate, but there are also more subtle things. Um, as far as IF creators go, I think it really depends on um, which particular engine you're, you're using. Um, I think that actually, and I don't, I don't, and part of honestly our mission with this particular initiative with IFTF is to, is to create those guidelines, create a document, um, that will kind of spell these things out for folks. At the same time, I think there are also good resources out there existing. You just have to adapt them to this particular genre. You know, for example, for Twine, which creates stuff in HTML, um, there's the WCAG or WCAG, uh, I guess, uh, guidelines for websites um, that really go into their different tiers of um, support that you can potentially meet. Um, that is something that I think would work with Twine. As far as um, like parser-based stuff, I'm less sure about that, to be honest. So there are a lot of different systems in which to be creating these games, accessible and otherwise. We've mentioned Twine, Tads, Inform, but the IFTF has the benefit of having the original creator of Twine on its board of directors. Does that mean that the IFTF favors Twine over those other platforms? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, obviously. I mean, the, the thing is that... I think that it happened to be a, a sort of a nice, happy coincidence that I was I was looking for um, kind of an umbrella for Twine to exist under. It's been something that I've been thinking about a lot myself personally about the project. Is that someday I will either get hit by a bus or um, just lose interest in Twine. Hopefully, neither of those things will happen. Um, but I'm very interested in making sure that. Um, if that, if either or either of any of those horrible scenarios come to pass, that there is going to be continuity, and um, and that's why I was so interested in working with IFTF, is I think that that's going to. I really hope that IFTF is going to offer that kind of continuity for Twine. I think it's. I think it goes without saying. Hopefully, that we love everybody equally, and we want to make sure that we're not particularly biased in one direction or another. Um, I think it'd be foolish to try to ignore the the huge corpus of work that already exists out there um, with these systems. And I don't mean to exclude. There's a ton of other systems too, like think places or uh, systems like AGT, which is an older one, or Hugo, which still has a dedicated following. There's just a huge wide variety. And I, I should also mention Raconteur was another another system just to pop in my head. There's a million things. I mean, that's the thing. It's, there's all these different ideas floating out there for. Um, different systems and they all represent the reason why I think there are so many different systems is they all by and large represent different points of view, both on what it means to create a text adventure and also how you want to go about doing it. Um, inform obviously is, is something that was oriented around the old infocom games. It creates, or at least it used to create, um, it's moved on to, we, we, our format has moved on to bigger and better, better things, but originally it was designed to create games in the same format that the infocom games um, took. And so it, it has its own sort of loyalty towards the ideas in those games. Um, obviously, things have changed over time. And each system that, um, you know, I've mentioned thus far, they all represent a different point of view. And it would just be, I, I think it would be horrible, honestly, if we were to like, uh, make judgment calls. It's not really our role to say like to be an arbiter of taste, not at all. Um, it, our, our goal really 
is to make sure that projects projects get the support that they need. Um, and it's not even to say like, yes, this lives, this dies, you know, that would be, that would, that would just be, I don't, I, I wouldn't believe in an organization like that. Um, it's really our goal to find those projects where we can do the most good. And that's why we're talking about, you know, things like IF archive and the competition, things that hit, um, across the spectrum of the community, things that aren't particular necessarily to a particular system. But I, and the thing is also that everybody has their own, um, desires, um, as far as how much support they may like. Um, I suspect that IFTF may take more custody or, or custodianship, I suppose is the better word of twine than, for example, a system that's been around for much longer, you know, an inform or a TAS where there already is kind of an existing, um, infrastructure for it. But that's really up to the owners and the maintainers of each system. I, I don't think our goal is not by any means to try to seize anything from anyone or likewise shut out anybody. You know, it's really our goal is to figure out where we can do the most or offer the most help. So given that IFTF is so young, only about six weeks right now, are there any early accomplishments or successes you can point to? Well, I think a huge one is taking um, ownership of the IF competition. Um, I think that is really one of the um, kind of keystones uh, or, you know, key parts of the community. Um, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, it's been around for a really long time. And I think a lot of people in the community are, want to make sure that it continues to exist. Um, so that I think is, you know, in six weeks, <laughs> we've, I'm proud of that. And I think that is a, uh, honestly, I'm really happy that it is already paying off dividends. I think that we've already been able to cover like the basics, you know, like I think that we now, um, are helping out with server hosting um, completely for the competition website, which is, uh, you know, not the biggest thing, but it is also a really important thing because as far as I know, people in the community were paying for those servers out of pocket and there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it's not something that necessarily screams sustainability to me. And I think that this is going to really set um, or build a lot of groundwork towards making sure that the competition will continue to exist for a long time. Excellent. And you said you're also working on the ifarchive.org. Are there any long-term missions? Certainly you want to help individual cases as they arise, but and you're working on accessibility as a larger project. So, mm -hmm. you, have, so you have ifcomp, ifarchive, and accessibility. Any other long-term goals that you want to mention here? Um, I think at this stage of the game, we're actually thinking about or building a strategic plan to figure that out. Um, I think obviously I have my own interests in making sure that, you know, Twine has, finds a good home with IFTF. And I also, without really, I mean, the key thing is really we want to do things in a way that doesn't disrupt um, how things are, are working right now. I mean, if why, we don't want to come in on, and ruin something that is going very well. And that, you know, that's the IF comp, that's IF archive and so forth. And anyway, so what we are trying at this point, I think, to develop a, a strong plan for stuff going forward. I think that we have our entire board and our advisors have tons of ideas about what should come next. Um, it's just a, really a question of um, how best to spend our resources because we're just getting off the ground. And obviously we don't, as far as I know, have like billions and billions of dollars to throw around. Hopefully that'll change in the very near future. But so we, we have to be strategic about what we do and we want to make sure that, you know, what we do is going to have a, as big of an impact as possible given what we, the, the, the environment that we're in. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing everything that the IFTF 
has in its future. Can you remind our listeners where to find it online? Oh, absolutely. It's the, so the website for it is iftechfoundation.org. And it is a 501c3? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so um, you can obviously donate online. Um, we also have a presence on Twitter and Facebook. Um, obviously, on Facebook, you can just sort of search for uh, IF Tech Foundation and find us there. So on Twitter, we are IFT Foundation. Excellent. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. Chris, if you have a few more minutes, I'd love to chat with you a little bit about interactive fiction more broadly, divorced from the IFTF specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So I was reading your blog, and you mentioned that you've used Twine to teach programming to fifth graders. Is that correct? Uh, I wouldn't take credit for that directly. Um, the, the actual environment that I was in um, was actually, uh, it is an organization called Coder Dojo, and there happens to be a sort of chapter, individual group of it that is based out of Bethesda, Maryland. It's like a DC suburb. And they were kind enough to invite me in for a particular session. So it's, it's basically almost like, um, a, like the get together, I believe on Saturdays and it's aimed at kids. Honestly, um, I think I saw someone in there was even as young as like five or six. Um, and, uh, they, it's designed to try to help, uh, teach kids, um, programming skills basically. So you have folks, um, they're learning about Python, for example, as a programming language. They're using Scratch, which is a visual programming language, and they're also using Twine. And they're, it's all sort of in service of teaching basic programming skills and basic computing skills. Um, so I was really, it was, it was incredible to actually be able to meet these kids. And I understand that this is something that lots of people do across the country, and be able to see that you know see the impact um, that Twine really has had, at least in this, that, this particular context. Yeah, I've heard of Twine and MIT's Scratch being used as introductory programming languages. When I was a kid, the languages you learned were stuff like BASIC and Pascal. But, mm-hmm. but at least with those two languages, they were an introduction to the structures and logic of programming, but nobody actually wrote and published programs in them. They were just sort of tutorial languages. It sounds like, however, Twine is not just something that you use to teach programming then put away. It is, in and of itself, a full-fledged programming language that can output legitimate projects. Is that how you would describe it? Uh, Yes, although I think there is a vast... I believe... Oh, man, I wish I knew this for sure. I believe... I want to say the first thing, for example, that Richard Garriott, um, before Ultima, created... Akalabeth? I think that might be... He might have written that in BASIC, but I could be wrong. Anyway. (laughs) Right, and no, I'm, I'm sure that... You're right. Back on the Apple II, that BASIC was a, a very powerful language that a lot of people release stuff on. And even nowadays, there is, are still BASIC programs being released on the Apple II. But I learned BASIC on the Apple II and thought that was enough for me to want to be a game programmer for a living. So I went to college to major in computer science, told them that I knew BASIC, <laughs> and literally got laughed out of the room. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, BASIC... Yeah. <laughs> I grew up learning basic too. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to have access to a computer, um, in elementary school. And I remember, yeah, it was basic and logo was the other language. And yeah, it's, I mean, I remember reading a lot of books at the time, like when I say hit middle school or so they're like, Oh, let me teach you Pascal because basic is garbage, you know? 
And at any rate, I get your point, though, which is to say, like, the basic and logo were designed to be teaching languages, um, or at least things that were designed to be used by beginners. And so we're, to a certain degree, limited by that, I guess I'll say. At any rate, yeah, I think that Twine is definitely designed so that you can kind of go up and down the level of proficiency. Um, the, the, The way I like to explain it is it kind of scaffolds you. And so, for example, if you don't really know anything about programming, you can build something in Twine very easily um, because you just build the links and you go from there. But hopefully, um, you know, as you're working on a very basic game, um, you know, it occurs to you like, oh, wait, like I want to make a door that requires a a lock or a key to open. Um, And then maybe you delve into it a little bit and you learn a little bit about scripting or you learn about what an if statement is or something like that and um, variables and that sort of thing. And you learn it in this very tiny way. Um, You just get this door working and that's it. Whereas, you know, a lot of modern day programming tools, you have to, there's a lot of groundwork you have to do to before you even get something on the page, as it were. So Twine gives you something right out of the gate. Um, where you have something functioning. And then as you get more sophisticated with things, like not only just programming, but also if you're interested in, you know, CSS and aesthetics and stuff like that, you can also play with that and make your games prettier that way. Um, You can do that and you can dive into that whenever you want to. It's not something that it doesn't really block you off from creating things um, in the way that, you know, if I start with Unity, um, Unity is a great tool. Um, but it's very complicated as it turns out. And you got to know a lot of stuff to begin with. And if you, um, want to get like, there's definitely sort of a, I would say plateaus almost on a learning curve where it's like to build something basic with unity, there's a certain hill you've got to climb. And if you want to get a little more sophisticated, you're going to have to climb this other hill first before you start seeing results. And the hope, at least my hope is that twine has a much more gradual slope to it where you can play with things in tiny ways. And then as you, you can then hopefully apply that knowledge um, elsewhere and, and build stuff that's really sophisticated. But just like I experienced with basic, do you think twine has something of an image issue? And the example I'll give is when Carolyn Van Esseltine, one of your co-directors for the IFTF was on this podcast earlier this year. She related the anecdote of, I think she was working at harmonics was working on a twine game in her own time. Asked one of her colleagues if he'd, look over her code he said yes she gave him her twine code and he said no these are your design notes i want your code (laughs) well yeah absolutely i mean you know this is the internet right and everyone has opinions and i think that people miss it i think that brian moriarty actually gave an, an amazing he gives amazing talks in general but he gave a really good um gdc talk i believe where he talked about how there's this inherent bias against what people see as uh, computationally simple things, I guess is the best way to put it. It's like, how many polygons are on screen? Oh, zero. Okay. This, this is, this is lame. And there's this sort of, I think expectation and it's hard because I think it's also, it combines a couple of different things you have. It's all web-based. And so there's a certain prejudice or whatever, a pre-existing experience there, but also, um, you know, it it is, it's text-based. And so that, you know, that, people walk into it with certain preconceived notions about like, Oh, this can't be that complicated or that good. Um, if it is, if it's a twine game and honestly, I mean, that is a very tough battle to fight. I think, you know, I I wish people were a little more open-minded to be honest. And that goes back to, I mean, you look at 
um, a game like Myst, that was another example that um, Brian mentions in his talk, is that Myst is actually a very, at least on the Mac anyway, it's a very simple game. Um, it's literally a hypercard stack underneath um, with some graphics and uh, a movie sort of plug-in running on top of it. But that doesn't diminish how good it is. It doesn't change like how expressive it is or make it any less good than like a, a more action-packed or something that is fully 3D rendered like in real time. That doesn't change, you know, it's, it has nothing to do with the experience that you have playing the game. So at least that's my feeling on it is that, um, you know, people... You know, you can't really argue with people's tastes per se. I think that it does get an unfair rap. And I think that people, and especially, I mean, it's funny. I think um, this actually it was, someone said this in um, relation to web development, but I think it's also true in game development too, that nowhere is there, is it more, the only place that is more sort of fashion conscious than programming right now is uh, snowboarding. <laughs> and <laughs> like the thing is, everybody cares about what, what's your tool chain, what's your engine, whatever. And is it the best engine? Is it not the best engine? And everybody wants to make sure that they are on the right, using the right tools because the right tools create the best stuff. But that's, you know, false on its face. It's all, it's more, it's much more about um, the artist or the creator. You could give, uh, um, you could give Twine, hopefully, to a really great designer. And I think they would put together really amazing stuff. Um, and that has nothing to do with the sophistication level of it. And I mean, that's the thing is like, I certainly have my quibbles, for example, to go back to your original point about basic or whatever. I think there were some bad decisions made with the design of that particular language. But at the same time, there's this incredible library of things that were created with it back in the day. Are there better tools now? Absolutely. Um, but that, do that, that doesn't diminish what people have done with it and doesn't make them dumb or something for having created with it. No, certainly not. And one of the advantages of Twine is that anybody can create with it. It's so accessible. That's one of Carolyn's primary core principles when she was on this podcast talking about how everybody should be empowered to make games if they want to. Absolutely. But I I do have sort of a, a devil's advocate question, which I think Carolyn probably already addressed, but I'd like to hear your take. <laughs> sure. Which is that are barriers to entry necessarily a bad thing? Because it means that those who are making games when it's making games is a difficult thing to do, will necessarily have either the dedication or the talent to overcome those barriers. If you just let anybody create a game, there's going to be a lot more crap to filter through. Yeah, absolutely. But the wonderful thing is that like, there are people who are interested in filtering through that crap, right? So you don't even necessarily have to do the hard work of it yourself. And, you know, who's to say that one man's crap, I guess, is another man's really good game. But to get to your point, I mean, sure, uh, the higher the mountain, the, the more the achievement, perhaps. Um, but it also, there's just a ton of assumptions in that idea. Is that, first of all, that, um, like, uh, games can have an objective quality, assigned to them. Um, I think that Twine in particular, um, people have created games that are very personal in nature, um, talking about their own experiences. And a lot of times these are folks who have experienced some terrible things and they, this is a way for them to talk about it. Is that going to be like of interest to the average 13 year old boy playing Minecraft or whose favorite game is Minecraft? No, probably not. Maybe it will be when he or she, he hits 15 or, you know, high school or something like that. But, and the, the truth is that 
I, or at least I feel that the truth is that the more people we have creating games, the wider diversity we have. I mean, it just sort of follows, right? We not only have a diversity of quality, but a, a diversity of subject matter, of um, voice, of all these things. And I just, I, I think not everything is going to be to everybody's taste. That's fine. I mean, there are a lot of games that are built in twine that I don't particularly care for either. But the other thing that I think people neglect to realize is that, um, I mean, this is a problem that we've faced ever, not even a problem, but just a situation created by the internet because it has become so um, easy to publish things in the first place, regardless of what platform you're creating in, you know, um, there's just more of it and it, there's the quality is going to vary accordingly. And I mean, it's the thing is, I guess I would argue, or the, the simplest way that I could put it is that just because you have 13 year olds writing terrible live journal poetry, it doesn't diminish what people, the, the really great stuff. And I think that it will ultimately lead to more great stuff. Um, because it sure, um, I'm sort of willing to go along with the idea that perhaps there's sort of like a funnel or not even a funnel, but just like a pyramid of quality or whatever, um, where there's going to be fewer good things. That's just the, the nature of life. But because there's the pyramid itself is bigger, that means that there's going to be more really great stuff at the top. You mentioned how IF can be used to help people process difficult things. And I think it's worth pointing out that one of, in my opinion, the most impressive games I've ever played was an interactive fiction game built in Twine, and that is Depression Quest. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, think, I think a lot of people who have heard of that game may not necessarily have heard of Twine, but that is the engine that enabled that game to be created. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's just the nature of text in general is to be more personal, I think, because it obviously it lets you get into someone's head much faster um, because you can kind of, you can just type out what are your thoughts. Um, that's not necessarily lead to the best um, narratives, but I mean, it, it, it makes it easier. And I think also that I think, Ah, there's so much that circulates around depression quest. Unfortunately, there's so many things that are sort of, I feel I wish could just be ignored, but they can't all the ugliness around it. But I think that the thing that I think most of all gets ignored or forgotten in, in everything with that game in particular is that there are very few games so far as I know that have really tried very seriously to talk about um, mental illness or for that matter, any kind of illness in a serious sort of way. I mean, like, I feel like, you know, there's always the cartoony amnesia that is the excuse sort of to make the plot easier to digest for the player. But that, no, very few games ever really talk about what it's like or try to portray that kind of experience. And if it's sort of like, if you, I don't think you can have it both, or you, you, you have to allow both things. You have to be able to say like, if a games are going to be truly art, and I think most people, most people who are avid gamers really believe that, then you have to uh, admit the possibility of games that are going to cover this huge, much broader spectrum of human experience, right? Like, I'm not trying to diminish existing games at all, but so many of them are power fantasies, right? Like you start off small and not very powerful. And then by the end of the game, you were a tiny or immense God or whatever, kind of doing whatever you want. And there's definitely an attraction there, but that is so small, that's such a tiny slice. Even if you admit that as a part of the human experience, that is such a tiny part of the human experience. And like really, and all these games like depression quests are expressions of things that are just broadening what it means, what you can create in a game. And that's why I, I love games like that. 
is that it's really it's it's a really exciting time. It's a um, really scary time in a lot of ways, but it's also a really exciting time um, where people are really beginning to open things up. And I think it's just I honestly believe it's going to get so much better from here. I really do. Regardless of whether it happens with Twine or some other tool or even some other, you know, different way of thinking about things. I think that sort of that particular door or those doors have begun, have been opened and there's nothing can close them now. That's something I've begun noticing even in mainstream games. You mentioned in interactive fiction, you don't have any polygons on the screen. So you focus on what you have, which is the narrative. And I feel like mainstream games are starting to catch up to that. We have had a lot of more narrative-based games like Gone Home, Life is Strange, Firewatch. Do you feel like modern games, or rather mainstream games, are finally catching up to where IF has been for the last several decades? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say no, actually, because there's so much more ground to cover. I mean, like, that's actually, I gave a talk um, a while ago, and just talking about, like, there are so many interesting ideas in IF that people have figured out or tried out that like the mainstream gaming world has was just never heard of. Um, and it's just an unfortunate limitation because of the barrier of the, the parser and, um, you know, the, the text-based interface that just, that, um, scares some people off. And I'm not trying to say that everybody should love IF either. Like it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's your taste. It's what's going to talk, speak to you, what makes you happy, that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, yeah, there's so much, I think in general, um, game development is such a siloed world. And part of it is this sense of proprietariness about it, where it's like, we have to keep every, and it's easy for me to say this. I'm all, I, I want to grant that it before I start ranting really hard is that I don't work in the industry myself. So it's very easy for me to crit criticize it. But at the same time, I see like so much sort of everyone wants to keep things so close to the vest because they're afraid of squandering some advantage that they may have. And I get that there's a need for secrecy at the same time. Um, but there's so much to draw on and there's always this feeling of like, it's almost a little bit of defensiveness. I feel like where it's like games are the best. I, I kind of agree with you there. Games are really great, but there's so many other influences to draw from. And I'm not even talking about IF specifically. I just mean like the water, wider world of books and art and theater and all kinds of stuff that games could draw on. But because there's sort of this, this not invented here syndrome going on, but also um, I think it's a little still a little bit of insecurity to say like they, you know, people have this very vested belief that games are, the, are, are great um, and therefore, in their heads, I think it means, oh, these other art forms must not be as good. And so therefore, why would I possibly borrow from them or even not even borrow, but take inspiration from? And that's just, you know, I think that that feeling or that tendency will go away as we mature as an industry and as an art form. Yeah, it's so exciting that we are finally maturing, that we're seeing games like Depression Quest and Oxen Free that are dealing with both serious and frivolous aspects of narrative, and that we have tools like Twine and Kickstarter that are just throwing the gates open for more and more people to tell their stories. It's such a wonderful time to be a gamer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, I, I think... Um there have been so many more games or mainstream games, I guess I should say that I've been interested in playing <laughs> than in many years. Um, I mean, my, my uh, interest with like console gaming kind of waxes and wanes. Like I loved 
the PlayStation 2 era, for example, because of all the weird, weird games that were getting released on it. But then I sort of tuned out in the, the most recent generations. Um, and now I'm like thinking, now I'm playing a lot of games on PC as it happens. But it just seems like for like almost all those games that you've mentioned, I played um, recently, not, you know, depending on when they were released, but over the course of the year or whatever. And it's been really interesting to see, like all of a sudden this is like, I'm much more, interested in what people are doing i feel like there's so many different um approaches being taken and it doesn't even necessarily touch on narrative although like i love narratives so that stuff is close to my heart i think that there's just a lot more experimentation and it's there's all kinds of stuff going on that's really it's very hard to keep track of honestly it's all kinds of stuff and that's the exciting part but also the, and it goes back to sort of what we're talking about where there's just so much stuff and not all of it is great but it's it's almost like a challenge now is how do you filter it? How do you find the stuff that you are really interested in? And the answer is you don't have to. You let somebody else do it for you. Exactly. That's the lesson of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, I've had an awesome time speaking with you about IFTF, about IF, and about gaming in general. For those who want to continue the conversation, can you remind them where to find you, not IFTF, but you online? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I have a website, chrisklimas, K-L-I-M-A-S dot com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Klembot, K-L-E-M-B-O-T. Um, the main uh, sort of Twine website is Twinery, T-W-I-N-E-R-Y dot O-R-G. Um, and we also have a Twitter account, Twine Threads. Fantastic. There will be links to all that in the show notes. Chris Clemis of the Interactive Fiction Technology Foundation and Twine, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Sure. Thank you. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. First, a brief postscript. I tried to be as forthcoming as possible about the potential conflicts of interest in this episode, but there were just too many to mention. I backed Andrew Plotkin's Kickstarter for Hadean Lands. I backed Jason Scott's Kickstarter for Get Lamp. I backed Jason Scott's Kickstarter for three more documentaries that he's currently working on. I've interviewed both Andrew Plotkin and Jason Scott for both Juice GS and Computer World. I was also one of the first donors to the IFTF. Goodness. However, Polygamer almost exclusively consists of topics that I am passionate about, so it only makes sense that that passion would extend beyond the time and energy it takes to produce just the podcast. Second, speaking of Jason Scott, he filmed a wonderful documentary about interactive fiction called Get Lamp. It was a commercial venture, but it was released under Creative Commons, which means not only can you stream or download it online, but I can also include an excerpt of my favorite passage right here. Let's, let's have a little thought experiment here. Right. You're playing in a virtual world, and it's got these pictures, and they're looking pretty good. And you think, oh, that's pretty good. You know, I like these pictures, and I make pretty well. You know, there's a, they're only, I mean, it's a 3D world, but I'm only seeing it in 2D on the screen. So maybe if I got, like, the little headset on and put that on, oh, now I can see it in 3D. Uh, but if I move my head a bit too much, oh, well, maybe if you put little sensors on so I can move my head, ah, yeah, now I can see it properly, ah, yes, it's all here in, and, but I can still only seeing things, and maybe I could have maybe some feeling as well, so I put a little data glove on, and, uh, yes, oh, it feels warm, oh, that's good, but I'm still, I'm not hearing things, oh, I put the goggles on, oh, um, 
and I haven't got this sense of, of being in a place and maybe I want to be able to move so I uh, tell you what let's get these big like coffin things and fill them full of these gels and I'll take off all my clothes and put on all these um, different devices and I lay down it and then it put these little electric currents through and make it feel hard or soft so it gives me the impression that I'm actually walking through grass because it's generating and now now I'm beginning to feel I'm really in one of these places but of course really what's all that's happening here is that um, and my, my, my senses are being fooled in, into this. What, what would happen if I was maybe just cut out the whole business with the fingers? Then you stick a little jack in the back of your head and it goes right into the spinal cord and then you're talking straight to the brain there. All the senses that come into your brain, they're all filtered and they're, and they're used to create a world model inside your head in your imagination. But if you could talk straight to that imagination and cut out all the senses, then you, it would be impossible to ignore it. You couldn't say, Oh, that's just a, uh, an image of a dragon. That would be a dragon. And if there was some kind of technology which could enable you to talk straight to the imagination, well, there is. It's called text. And it's been around for several thousand years. And I have seen people leap out of their chairs when a, a line is set in front of them. There is an immense fire-breathing dragon here. And when you're typing, the output that you're typing is in words the same as the input. There's no shift. It's not that you're looking at a picture and then typing in words, looking at a picture moving around a mouse around. It's the same environment. It's all words. It's all thoughts. It's all the might. It's all the imagination. So when you're dealing with text, it's really for people who have got strong imaginations. And the tragedy is that many people have strong imaginations. It's just they never get to play the text because they went for the graphics first. Will we always have text? We will always have text. Will it always be inferior to graphics? Well, in terms of player numbers, yes. In terms of player experience, no. Because no matter how far you take graphics, eventually, the farthest you can get is text. Hmm. That's a rant for you. Excellent. <laughs>